Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Hi, I'm not Michael Mopurgo. You might be a bit shocked to see me. I'm Claire Armistead, and I'm interviewing him. Um, and uh, this is incredibly an incredible privilege for me because I work for The Guardian. And um, before I worked for The Guardian, I was, I was a real bookworm, which I expect a lot of you are here since you're, since you're all here. And he, I thought back in the very early days that he was my secret because little, few of you will know that War Horse, which I'm sure many of you have seen, was actually published in 1982. So that was when I was a young thing, which might seem pretty impossible to you, but anyway, it's true. Um, but So we're now here today to interview somebody who has, I counted up on his Wikipedia page, 114 books. Can you imagine 114 books? And I think that that's not all of them either, and that's just the ones that are there. And the thing about a great writer who's been going for a very long time is that everybody has their own secret bits, their own favourite bits, depending on when you first entered what I call the magic kingdom of Michael Mopurgo. So for me, it was around the warhorse time. For you, you might have lots of different books. Um, but we're going to talk today about, particularly about his books about war, because that's, he's been doing a lot more of them recently. And um, I want to just read you one, a quote from the introduction of, of one of his novels, not, not Flamingo Boy, um, and not in the, in the mouth of the wolf, but one that was a little bit earlier. And I just ha have a listen to this very carefully, and you'll see why I'm reading it to you. This is something he wrote about his writing. I write fiction, but fiction with roots in history, in the people who made our history, who fought and often died in our wars. They were real people who lived and had their being in another time, often living and suffering through great and terrible dangers facing these with unimaginable courage. My challenge as a story maker has been to imagine that courage, to live out in my mind's eye, so far as I can, how it must have been for them. Ladies and gentlemen, I welcome Michael Mopogo. Michael, I like the hat. You, it's not the season for hats anymore. No, I just came back from holiday yesterday, and I'm in sort of holiday mood, <laughs> with hat and the shoes to go with it, and um, the spirit to go with it too. I feel very refreshed. Um, so I thought I'd bring my, my sort of new persona to this, um, to this wonderful festival. Isn't it wonderful to set up a festival here in this place? Um, and what a room. I hope the, is the sound any good? Can all hear uh, us, I, yes. I really hope it is, otherwise I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> so it's called the Festival of Ideas, and there are loads and loads of ideas in Michael's work, obviously. And the two books we're here particularly to talk about, he says he's just been on holiday. I can hardly believe he actually ever, you actually ever have time for a holiday. So it wasn't a proper holiday. Oh, you were working. I was, I was working in conjunction with a, a rather wonderful writer called Homer, um, who sort of, <laughs> he lived on this island, Ithaca, and we met up and had a nice chat. He's got a nice hat, too. <laughs> um, so he was, he's been in the world of Greek myths this holiday, but what, the two books that he's published this year, two whole books this year. One is Flamingo Boy. How, hands up, who's read Flamingo Boy? Yeah, well, that's not enough. Not enough. Oh, no, that's, it is enough, because they will then have the pleasure of going away and reading it, Michael. That's the point. You don't ever want to have read everything. I shouldn't blame them, then. Talk about <laughs> And uh, that's a story of, of two children living in the south of France um, during the Second World War, and we'll, we'll talk lots more about that. And the other one is called In the Mouth of the Wolf, and it's a story of Michael's two uncles. So in a way, when you say you write fiction with roots in history and the people who made our history, and you don't, you, you make, you, you don't use the real people, you m make up people who represent the people, you've, you've actually done exact, you haven't done that in either of these two books, have you? Because one is made up, and one is you about real people whose real yes, names. Yes, it's the only time I've ever written a book in which I've made nothing up at all. Not the names. Just everyone in the story happened, um, and I know because it's a family story, and we have the photographs to prove it. And the story has been in my head all my life. It's the 
in a way, the great story of my whole growing up, the choice between pacifism um, and taking part in conflict. I'm a war baby. I've grown up with that dilemma all my life. I was a soldier once because I tried it. Um, And it was a very important book to me because it's about my two uncles. I'll talk about more in a minute, I guess. But it was a book I had to get right because it's a family book and it was important that the family liked it. And it's a difficult book because within it, we're not talking about uh, people who were perfect. We're talking about human beings who make mistakes. And um, both my uncles were extraordinary people. I know one I didn't know. Um, the one who is the main part of the story, my uncle Francis, I knew very well indeed and got to know him more and more as he got older. And it's a story of espionage, partly, isn't it? I mean, Yeah, it's a story, really, if I can explain it a bit. Um, I had two uncles. Well, my uncle Peter um, was an actor. That's what I always wanted to be. I still will be when I grow up. Um, <laughs> he was an actor. He went to RADA. He was enormously handsome, as are all the males in my family. Um, looked like Rupert Brooke. He was a wonderful-looking man. Anyway, come the war, uh, 1939, he decided that this evil of Hitler had to be stopped, and he left his beloved theatre and put on an RAF uniform and went into bomber command as a navigator. And um, he was killed aged 21, um, not long after joining up. So he was a photograph on the mantelpiece of my childhood. I saw my mother, his sister, um, every time it was Peter's birthday. She'd be very affected and in tears, and of course, November the 11th, it affected her very badly. Um, and that face is, as I'm speaking to you now, it's in my head really clearly. It was, it was the uncle I never knew, but always wanted somehow to emulate something very heroic about him, both to look at and as a child growing up. It's difficult for children to believe now, but um, just after war, those were the great heroes. Um, particularly in the RAF, I don't know why. But anyway, I was very proud of him, for no good reason. You had no right to be proud of him, but I was. But the story really is that my other uncle, my uncle Francis, was a teacher by profession. He was the older brother. Um, And he decided, I think even before the war, he was a socialist, he was a pacifist, and he decided this was not the thing you should do, in spite of Hitler and, and all his horrors. He decided um, that he would go before a committee and declare his pacifism, and that's what he did. And they believed him and said, well, you've got to make a contribution to the war, uh, war effort. So they sent him to farm somewhere up in Lincolnshire, dig potatoes, look after sheep, uh, to help the war effort. And then he had the news that his brother had been killed. And he, was, he told me later in life, he was holding his baby, uh, uh, some weeks afterwards, looking down at his small child's face and saying to himself, well, uh, they killed my brother. If they come here, it's very likely, having the beliefs I've got, they'll target people like me and this child. And um, I can't just sit around anymore and dig potatoes. So he talked to a friend of his, a wonderful educationist called Harry Ray. They were very, very strong in their teaching. And uh, Harry Ray said to him, well, actually, funny enough, I just joined this organization. Uh, I can't tell you what it is, but if you want to go and see them, this, there's this address in Baker Street. Go and see them. So he went along, and it was this strange interview with a strange man. And um, Francis was very tall, absolutely the wrong shape for a someone who shouldn't be recognized. He was six foot four and a half. Um, But he spoke French fluently. And so he was a good candidate to go into special forces, to go into the SOE, as it was called, and Special Operations Executive. So he went away to be trained. He couldn't say anything to his wife and family. Off he went. And he had this extraordinary two or three years. Um, He was enormously good at it. That was extraordinary. He was... um, a very secretive man, a very cautious man. And um, he told me once he had this extraordinary experience of going to Paris when he was first dropped in. And he had to meet up with some people in Montmartre in Paris, some fellow agents. And uh, as he occupied Paris, 
And there were a few of them gathered around a table at a cafe. And he walked up to them and they were all speaking English. And he thought, this is really weird. And so he didn't go and see them. And he knew that really the organization at that time just wasn't up to dealing with the Gestapo. They were, Gestapo were really good at what they were doing. And he got on a train and got, got out of Paris. And um, I don't know, a week, two weeks later, they rounded up every British Secret Service agent in Paris and 60 of them and shot the lot. And it was all really his instinct was that these people, not they weren't to be trusted, they just were innocent, really. So he went down there and he set up a, a huge organization down in the south of France where he um, supplied and helped the, the Maquis, the resistance, for the rest of the war. During which time, uh, he fell in love with a Polish agent who fought with him. And that was the complicated thing in the story. This is a love story, it's a war story. Um, it's a story about how he dealt with the whole business of not just putting on a uniform and fighting or being in a plane and dropping bombs, but he was as close to the enemy as you could possibly be. So the killing was close. And he was doing things like putting sand into their petrol tanks and so sabotaging their, their, their machinery. All sorts of things, just to mess them about as much as possible. I think it took more delight in that sort of thing than anything else because it was sort of less risky. But they were blowing up bridges, they were blowing up railway lines. But more than anything else, I think they were just trying to make a real... Uh, to, to make the Germans feel that they were not going to be there forever. That they, we were going to get you out. And the French people who were with him, who he was passionate about. He was very interesting about the women. Um, because in the French resistance, by and large, there is, an, as I think in many uh, stories about war, it's the men who take the, the important position. And he said that the women, the French women, particularly the country wives, the farming wives, were... They were the people who kept it all going. They were the people who took the food, the ammunition, hid it in their skirts and their bicycles and drove. And they were at much risk of being shot as anyone else, extraordinarily brave, and they kept the whole thing going. He said, and people don't talk about that. They talk about people in berets with Sten guns. And that was only part of it. Mm. So it was interesting. So there were, in fact, there, since we've talking about the women, there are three types of bravery within women, one of which is... Christine's bravery, which is to be a, 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 an agent. This is the Polish agent, lady. The Polish about. lady. One of which is these farm, farm mothers who, who didn't think twice before yep. sheltering things. But the other is Nan, his wife, mm. who, who... And this is a story, because in a way this is a very grown-up story. You don't think about the cost of, to the families who stayed behind. There were the men going off and leading very dangerous, but also very exciting lives. And then when they came back, they had to come back and remake a life with the people they'd left behind. Have they been totally secret about it for th three or four years? You couldn't have said a thing. And all this other stuff had been going on in his life, and Nan had been coping at home with other children. And Yes, to come back and make a marriage work afterwards, and they did. He came back after the war, and um, extraordinarily, I mean, it was an amazingly disciplined man, he came after all that hype and... You know, it was a, must have been a huge thing in, in her life to see Europe liberated, finally, after all that, and, and all the dying and the suffering and all the rest of the commitment, and then to come back and walk into a classroom. But not everyone can do that, and a lot of them, uh, secret agents, fell apart afterwards. And um, indeed, Christine was one. The Polish girl came back to this country. She had no country to go to, because the Russians had now occupied um, her country, so she had nowhere else to go, and we were remarkably bad at looking after people who had helped us. And um, somehow she was just abandoned and could not find her feet. And in the end, she was, she was stalked and murdered in a flat in London. And that was completely unconnected with what she completely did? Completely unconnected. Before. It's just that she, she was, I think, a bit lost. And so she was doing work, which was, she, she went to work as a, uh, on a ship, and, you know, serving drinks and stuff like that for a bit and met up with, I don't know, the wrong sort of people. And I think she just um, could not find anything that was going to grab her spirit after that. And then she had this awful end. So it's a story of enormous tragedy, but um, huge courage. And I suppose one of the reasons for writing it is that I spent my life wondering if what I would do had I been put in that sort of um, situation. And he does have um, sit things he has to face like he has to execute somebody 
Yeah. Even though he's a pacifist. Yep. And that's what's... What all that happened, I think, really, is when you got out there and you realised what the situation was, here were these people, and that's what's interesting about us today here, is that we have never in this country, never, um, for a thousand years, had foreign troops in our streets. Um, we have never had executions in villages and massacres and this sort of thing. You know, this is what happened. The Nazis did this stuff, and they did it to all over Europe. They did it in, one of the reasons that Christine was so passionate about it is they'd done it in Poland. They'd gone in there and, and uh, you know, her friends and her relations, people have been killed. It mattered. It was personal. And it was personal in, in France, too. There were those, of course, who said, well, look, let's, let's go along with this. It might get better. And then there were those who wanted to resist. And Francis became very, very committed to the whole business of resisting uh, the evil, which he knew had caused this awful suffering. The longer he was doing it, the more he realised it was necessary. So if there was something to be done that had to be done, he did it. Mm. Would you like to read a, a little bit from it? Yeah, I'll just read the beginning of it. If I read a bit later on, then they won't buy the book and there'd be no point. <laughs> I suppose it wasn't true, totally true, to say that every word is true. It's not. The manner of the telling of the tale um, it is... Is, is fictional in a way. What, what happened, when he got to the age of 90, Francis, he lived in a little village in the south of France, not far from Montpellier. And uh, he was very much the old man in the village. He was called Monsieur le Colonel. And um, he had a house in the village, and he, he lived there, and he would walk up to the... You'll like this. He would walk up to the village um, shop every day to get his copy of The Guardian. Hooray! <laughs> He loved that, he absolutely loved that. So he went on being a confirmed socialist all his life. Um, and anyway, he, he became a figure, a retiring figure, but a figure nonetheless. When he was 90, they gave him a birthday party. And uh, this is, is how it sort of was and how I imagined the birthday party. And the story really is if this man living through these wonderful moments with his friends in France who he adored and his family. And then he goes to bed. And when he is in bed, he thinks of all the people who weren't at the party, and they happened to be the six or seven people who had died, but who had made such a difference to his life. But anyway, here's the beginning. First chapter's called... Have we got some things up there in a minute? We're going to put up no. some drawings. Of, yeah. of drawings, I should say, are by a wonderful, wonderful French artist called Barou. Shall I, shall I just...? Yeah, do, 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 do. No, there we are. Yeah, there we go, yeah. Um, and that is a picture of Farsi's in his bed, in Le Pouget, and there's a church fire there. The barrel went down to France and stood in his bedroom and looked up there. And that's the, when he was an old man, that's where he used to sit and rest and, I think, not sleep very well. Um, and listen to owls. And listen to owls, yes. Um, anyway, so maybe keep that one up there. Yep. Happy birthday to me. They gave me such a jolly party today. Everyone from the village came. Ninety years old I am. I'm walking a bit stooped these days and my knees and hips are more rickety than they should be. But I can walk up into the village and I still like a good meal and a glass of good red wine. <laughs> plenty of that this evening. Sleep does not come so easily as it did, but I mustn't grumble. I have my memories and friends all around me and family too, those who are still alive. What more can an old man want? Well, a better memory would be good. I'm fine with faces and places. It's the years that get muddled, jumbled up. I spend my time trying to unjumble them. The village mayor made a generous speech and said how honoured they were to have Monsieur le Colonel Francis Camarts, such a great man and such a great friend to the people of Le Pouget and of France, living here in their little French village and his family too. The school children stood in the courtyard with their Union Jack and tricolour flags and sang Sur le pont d'Avignon and London Bridge is falling down as well. And everyone clapped and sang Happy Birthday to you in English and in French. A little girl stepped forward to present me with some flowers, red, white and almost blue irises. Lovely. The mayor said she was the newest girl in the school, that she had recently come from Punjab to live in the village. She spoke with quiet dignity and in good French. I am Jup Japun Kaur, 
from all the children in Le Pouget, I wish you a most happy birthday. I repeated her name again and again to be sure I was pronouncing it right. She smiled at me and told me that Kaora means princess. The flowers, she said, came from her garden. I was so glad at that moment that we'd come back to live in France, but sad that not all of us were here, that Nan and our Christine were not with us. Several others too. I miss them more today than ever. But I have Paul, and I have Nicky, and Jay, a wonderful son and two dear daughters, and little Kia, who is no longer little at all. Grandchildren grow up even faster than your own children. I should be thankful, and I am, I am. But in the dusk of my life, a dusk that is streaked with joys and sadnesses, I was suddenly tired and longing for the solitude and quiet of my little room and bed. I waved them all goodbye. Jay helped me into the house and into bed, hugged me and left. What children I have, what friends they are to me. So here I am now in my bed. Night has fallen, the bright moon shining into the window and the church bell striking midnight. My scops owl hoots his birthday greeting to me. I smile in the moonlight and settle back on my pillows. I know I won't sleep. This is a night for remembering. I want to remember everyone who wasn't here at my party, all my good companions in life who held my hand, stroked my brow, helped me through. I want to see them again, be with them again, live all my life with them again, from my sand pit days to now. Ninety years. And then he goes into his childhood and then... Anyway. Fantastic. Right. So I've, I've, I've swiftly changed the picture because we'll park that book there and we move on to... Park it. We'll park it. Move on to more Flamingo Boy, which is the other one. And even if you look at those two jackets, you can see how different they are, can't you? See, one, one is very black and white. That's the... That's in the mouth of the wolf, and the other one, very bright, and pictures of, you know, there's a fairground and lots of white horses and a, a real boy's face. Yeah. And this seems to me to be the two sides of you as well. In these yeah, it's, two. Also, it's also two publishers. And also two, two publishers and two artists. I'd imagine that. So tell us about Flamingo Boy. Shall I, shall I move forward to once to the slide, yeah. to the ships? Uh, yes. Because yes. that's the beginning, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes, absolutely. So the beginning, yes. you've just heard the beginning of In the Mouth of the Wolf, and... This is a key image for the beginning of Flamingo Boy. I was just talking to a, um, a friend of mine uh, just before the um, coming here, and he was interviewing me with a microphone and saying what it is that, how do you get started? And what got me started on this book was this picture. Does anybody know who it is, Who's it, who it's by? But who's it by? How do, yeah. you, know, how do you know that? <laughs> You're far too young to know that sort of thing. Brilliant. Give him a clap, would you? Will you give him a clap? <laughs> what, was his, um, what was his first name? And where did he live? Where was he born? It's getting worse. It's the whole thing. I'm not going to speak to him ever again. <laughs> anyway, the whole point really is this. I grew up with that picture on my wall. And you know the pictures you grew up with? You don't really look at them hard. They're just part of who you are. And it had been in my head all my life. And then I discovered two things about it. First of all, I discovered there's, a, there's something written on the side of one of the boats. Can you tell me what's written on one of the sides of the boats? <laughs> you can't, can you? Does anyone know? It took me about 70 years to even look at it to find out. The, the boat here, this one, has got amitié written on it. Friendship, love, whatever you like to call it. I have no idea why he put it there, but he put it there. That's what really fascinated me. That's, um, now the book began to take shape, and I began to do some research on where it was painted. Um, and it was painted in a place called Sainte-Marie, in the Camargue. And because of this picture, my wife and I decided to go down to the Camargue which we never really visited at all. 
and follow in Van Gogh's footsteps down to the coast. And while we were there, we came across, can we go back to the cover of the book? We came across every town seemed to have one of these, um, which I love, with horses and bulls and all sorts of things. And just outside the town gates or in the main square or something like that. And we stayed in a little town, a little walled town, and um, got to know the countryside round about and the extraordinary life, uh, wildlife. Um, amongst them, pink flamingos, the greatest number of pink flamingos I've, I'd ever come across. And there was a wonderful story, which is a story about conservation, which I'm going to tell you, um, because it made me write the book. Um, apparently, just after the Second World War, when, of course, they were occupied, uh, and a lot of people were starving, very, very hungry indeed, local people used to go out and pinch the eggs of the flamingos for food. You can't blame them. They had children to feed and themselves to feed, and they pinched them. Um, the flamingos stayed for a bit, but also what happened was, towards the end of the war, everything to do with the level of the flood, which was so important to those marshes, had gone wrong. And uh, there, there wasn't enough water. So what that meant was that if the flamingos landed on their islands, wanting to lay eggs where they'd always laid their eggs in their nests, um, the predators would come, the foxes, the badgers, the boar, the wild boar, and chase them off, eat them, kill them, whatever. So they stopped coming. And there was a professor of, I suppose, ornithology, I don't know, I think it was at Warwick or somewhere, English. And he discovered this and went down to research it and came across this tragedy that was happening. And the French people thought it was a great tragedy, but how were they going to do anything about it? Well, between the French people themselves and this professor, they decided that something should be done. They went to local government and said, you've got to make a law. No one is ever to eat a flamingo egg again, number one. Secondly, we're going to get the level of water regulated so those islands remain safe. So they did it all. The government, the local government agreed to it and it was great. It was very important to them because it's the kind of symbol of that place down there. And also brought visitors. It was really important. And this was in the 1950s by this time. And uh, then the professor waited for the flamingos to come back. And they didn't. And they didn't. And they didn't. And he was puzzling, puzzling. And then he got one of those blinding these. Well, of course, they. why would they come back? They have no homes to come back to. Because flamingos, I didn't know this either, build their nests over many, 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 many years of mud. They're little, little towers of mud with a little place in the middle for the eggs to be laid in. And they each have their own little tower and their own little place for laying eggs. And of course, they'd all been eroded by floods and by being scrabbled about by wild animals. There was nothing to come back to. So what did they do, this professor? And, they, and a lot of people, local people, went out there and they built flamingo nests out of mud. Isn't that wonderful? And the flamingos came back. You go back there now and you'll see the place is full. Thousands and thousands of these flamingos. And there was just a really wonderful story about how one or two people can, can make a real difference. Anyway, it's also, yes, it's about the occupation, but at its heart, it's a story about uh, an autistic boy. Uh, I have a grandson who's autistic. And before I had a, uh, a grand, my grandson, Lawrence, I knew what autism was, or I thought I did. Now I do. And uh, I thought what needs doing is you need to tell stories about autistic children and people. Not always because they've got a genius of some sort, some sort of mathematical brilliance or whatever. Because most, like most of us, haven't. They're regular people who live a very, very difficult life amongst what we call ordinary people. And it's very hard for them, hard for the people who look after, who are very, very dedicated and focused about the whole thing. So I thought, no, tell a story about a boy who grows up on this place in the Camargue, whose great passion is the, the flamingos. And it happens to be at the time of the war, and it's written all really because a, a young man, me, I like to pretend I'm young, <laughs> decides at the beginning of the book, that he will, he's got a picture on a wall, funnily enough, a Van Gogh picture of boats. And he wants to go and find out where that is on his year off, his gap year. 
So he goes wandering off down the Kamab, and he wanders on, and stuff happens. You have to read the book. It's about £12.99 in all good bookshops. <laughs> anyway, no, that's it. You missed out a very important character, another very important character. Kezia. Kezia. Yes, Kezia. Well, I thought... Um, I, I knew you'd ask that question, so I thought I'd um, bring it up later. Yes, there's a wonderful... The other thing that comes into it is there was a, there's a huge Roma population down in that part of the world. Okamag is one of the great centres of Roma culture. Um, and... Um, there's a family who are uh, the people who run the merry-go-round, as we call it in this country, who are the Roma family. And stuff happens, I won't tell you exactly what, and they have to come and live with the family of this autistic boy, a farming family, and they live out there on the marsh and live together, help each other. Um, and then the Kezia and the boy get to know each other very well and in the end do become companions for life. But it's also the story of the oppression of Roma people during the occupation. And as we all know, we all know that six million Jews were taken away and killed in the camps, but it's not necessarily so well known that there were many, many Roma people who went the same way. Autistic people, homosexuals. And it's good that, it's good to be reminded of these things, especially at the moment. So although um, this is a largely made up, although Alan in the story is the, real, is the character. Yes. It's, it's, it's that character. So, that, so I, didn't, I hadn't realised that, that he was actually the character who made the nests. Yes, absolutely. Although in the story and he's called it's Alan. Lorenzo. And Alan. he's called Alan. Oh, he was called Alan yes, as well. Yes, and, and what's really lovely is that my other grandson in that family is called Alan and it was really important that I had his name in the book. Two, yes. It's not all about... So it's that, Lorenzo. So Lawrence is called Lorenzo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The other one's called Lawrence. So, I, and, but they call him Lorenzo, so I thought I got one's Lorenzo and the other one is Alan, that's both my grandsons. So, if you, there are things that these two novel books, and a biography, autobiography, sort of biography, and, yes. a, and a novel have in common, mm. many things that they have in common, yes. one of which is um, your thing, people who don't fit in change the world. Yes, I think they do. I think it's... Um, I think it's us ordinary folk who can plod along, but the really interesting people are the people, it seems to me, who have a take on the world which is different and can shine a new light on the way we're going forward. Um, they're really important, those people. And sometimes they've had difficult beginnings. Not always, but they have had difficult beginnings, a lot of them. Um, you know, we've had plenty in our own, in our own times, great scientists um, who have not had an easy life and have taken a view of the world which is different from how it's been before, and that's, that's what we need. We've got to move on and become more enlightened, not less. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, another thing that um, comes up in both of them is, um, is this, the idea of collaboration. And when I was reading them, I was thinking collaboration in the war, when, when in, the case, in both these cases it's the French who are being occupied. Yeah. Some French people decided to join the enemies, become part of the oppressive army. But that's also quite similar to, to bully. They become bullies. Well, some of them do. I mean, the truth, I think there's a... Yes, there's some who, who, are, who are Nazis anyway. You know, they were very fascistic people, and they, if you like, were the secret police that the Nazis worked with um, to um, trample the resistance as much as they possibly could. But most French people wanted to survive, you know? And I think that's it's really important. We talk about collaborators. An awful lot of people just... They wanted to get through this and out the other side. The extraordinarily brave people took a stand and very often died for it. And sometimes they, were, they had such a passion to get on with this and do this. There's a terrible battle. In fact, I think it was the, the biggest battle between the French and the Germans in the Second World War. And again, people don't know about it, by and large. And it was this, that towards the end, 1944, the British government and de Gaulle's government, Free French in England, were encouraging the resistance to get ready for these invasions from the north, from the south, and encouraging them to, to, to make more trouble, to blow up more of this and do more of that. And the resistance wanted to get on with it. They wanted this liberté. They knew it was coming. And they were being encouraged by governments, rather foolishly, to get on with it too soon. And they had a, a stronghold, really, on a, on a plateau in the south of France called the Vercors. And there were 10,000 of them up there. 
uh, hiding away in caves and in forests, and then going out and they were training, uh, and going out on raids and things like that. But by and large, this was a hugely strong center for the, um, for the resistance. And at a certain point, they decided now's the time. They thought they got the signal from people in London. Get on with it. So on the uh, 14th of July, uh, they raised the tricolor in the main town on the Vercors and declared freedom. And um, they were not properly armed to do so. They had Sten guns, which were just like catapults against tanks and there's another bit, little bit of it, which is that, that, that actually lots of supplies were landed. They were landed, But yeah. they were landed so that everybody could see they landed, including uh, all the Nazis. And it was just a complete... It was one of these very brave defeats, which both the French and ourselves are extraordinarily good at. And the Vercors was the... the what happened was that they, they did, they declared this freedom, they dropped it by daylight. A lot of it fell into German hands anyway, and before we, they could pick them up and use them, um, the Germans drove their tanks up onto the plateau and the, um, the aeroplanes came and I think 3,000 of them died. There was lots of murders going on. It was just horrendous. And my uncle, uncle escaped from all that. He was, all part, he was part of all that. Mm. And he escaped with Christine and lived to fight another day. But um, no, it was horrendous. And they did, they, those people were extraordinary. There's no question about that. But I think we have to ask ourselves the question here. We, 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 we kind of sit on our hands a bit about all this because we have not been through this stuff. Um, you know, if we had had, imagine it just for a moment, and it wasn't that <laughs> it wasn't far away. If you had had Nazi stormtroopers marching down the Mall, how many people would have gone out and done something about it? Some would, but an awful lot had their lives to get on with, had their families to keep safe and feed. And there was all these other things come into it. It's not just a matter of. It's not black and white, this thing at all. And, the, and it's not black and white in terms of you have the milice who, in both yeah, of these yeah, books, the, the collaborati yeah. collaborating uh, uh, militia. From, but you also have a very good German captain. Yes, you do. You have both. <laughs> really good. Some of the people who were part of the occupation of France, some of the Germans, were perfectly fine people with the wrong uniforms on and following the wrong thing, that's for sure. They'd made the compromise too and found themselves looking after some little village. I just, I wrote a book years and years ago called Waiting for Anya, which is set in a tiny little village which I visited in the Pyrenees. And it's about a story I discovered of a wonderful, wonderful woman. She was called Orkada. And she um, hid, there were lots of safe houses all the way down through France, where downed allied airmen and Jewish children were being hidden away, and then passed from house to house to house. And the last house before the Spanish border and safety and freedom was just on the edge of this village. And I discovered this when I was down there because the mayor of the village then had been a boy at the time of the occupation of the village, an 11-year-old boy, and he told me. And one of the things he said, you know, it amazed us. They all came in their trucks. And the first thing we thought is they're amazing. So he's a boy, he's 11. They're amazing. They're the winners. You see what happens to... That's what they thought. He said, I can tell you, that's what we thought. In some way, we really admired them because they looked like victors. And they didn't do anything horrible to the people. They were there to stop these people going over the, um, over, over the frontier. But as a little boy, he didn't know that. All he knew was that some of the Germans would talk to him and give him chocolate. And the old man used to get together sometimes in the, in the village inn in the evening and talk. And they suddenly discovered something they got in common. They'd been at Verdun together on opposite sides. There was a companionship. It's just really complicated, this stuff. And yet, at the same time, if they discovered any of these Jewish children, they'd have been sent to the camp and off to Auschwitz. Well, it's a nightmare. Now, I'm going to open it out for questions in two minutes, but I'm, just to give you a chance to think of your questions, I just want to ask one more question, which is about your work with artists. Yes. And Because you often work with artists. I work you? with Van Gogh, as you know. Uh, with Van Gogh, obviously. <laughs> I've worked, well, my, the artist I normally work with, who I'm sort of married to, is a man called Michael Foreman, who's a dear, dear friend. He's a Chelsea supporter, but that's a problem. But apart from that, he's fine. And I work with him, I've worked with him for years and years and years, and I've done one, lovely books with people like Quentin Blake. And just recently, I've done a book with a wonderful artist, some of you may know, called David Gentleman, who's now an extraordinary age, and he's still as good as he ever was. He paints watercolours 
And he, he and I have done a, a book together called Our Jacko, and it's a real honor to be working with someone like that. Now, I love working with artists. I don't write in my books generally. I don't use many words. I, I, don't, I think that's quite rare amongst writers. Most writers really like using words. I prefer to use few words and let the reader do the work. <laughs> and then sometimes have an artist to add something to it, not, not simply to illustrate it, but to add something to the text. Um, For example, yeah. it's the, I mean, really important is the landscape. Yeah. And there you have it. Yeah, that's it. And Baru is um, he's a remarkable man. He, he, he's done that many books, but two or three of them have already been. The one called In the Line of Fire. Some of you might have seen it. Um, he, he does, it's, it's not dissimilar to me. He finds interesting things. He, he loves paper, which is old, old exercise books. And he, he, he paints on those sort of things. It's like buying new stuff. And he, he really does. He rifles through um, tips, you know, outside houses where people are... And he was going along one day and he found this exercise book in Paris. A bit wet, so he picked it up. And it was all in pencil. Handwritten in pencil. Only about... 20 pages of it, very big letters. And it became really, really evident that this was the writing of a man at the time of the beginning of the First World War. He was writing notes about what had happened to him that particular day. And nothing extraordinary happened. It was about getting his uniform on the first day, getting in a train and saying goodbye to his auntie, and his boots didn't fit, and then going off to training where he learned to shoot, and he wasn't very good at shooting. And it just goes on like this. Sounds very, very boring. And he read through this, and then he looked for the name. No name. And he got to the end of it. It was just a full stop. It stopped at the beginning of 1915. No idea where this came from, who this person was. So he took it to a publisher and said, look, I'd really like to illustrate this. And the publisher said, no, 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 you've got to expand on it. You've got to do this, you've got to do this. No, 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 this is it. And he did this wonderful, wonderful book, one of the best books I've ever seen about the First World War. But it's just that ordinariness and then this thing that was waiting for these young men. And this guy was not a literate man. This is not a great poet, you know. It's, um, it's really important to know that the people who went there were very often like that. Mm. They were not ordinary people, but they were not poets. Mm. They were not playwrights. They were not filmmakers. Mm. Um, they had a mum and they had a dad and they were putting on a new uniform and going off to do this thing. And they didn't know what was going to happen. So there we are. He's a wonderful man. Baru, get all his books. One, really of the, one of the things that... Uh, I mean, just, just a sort of closing thing. is mm. really interesting that it's all in black and white and the two sort of key images are red, white and blue. And yeah. that is how I think his aesthetic matches yours. There isn't a red, yeah. white and blue. But that's in your head. Yeah. Anyway, we'll stop there. Well, I think... We've all got to learn at some stage or other, all of us, this is not a narrowly political Brexit thing to say, but we really have to learn about other people. The one brilliant thing about books is that they help children understand themselves and other people, the world about them, whether it's the ecology of the world, the history of the world, that is how you find out about the world. Most of us find out through, through books, because you can't find it out all yourself instantly. And what you learn from that, I suppose, what I've learned, I can only speak personally, of my 75 years almost, is that you have to learn to understand, and that understanding will lead to trust and friendship if you give it long enough. And that's what we must learn. I mean, what we're doing at the moment all over the world is indulging in this confrontation, you know, the ratcheting up of suspicion and dislike and resentment when we should be learning more and more to comprehend each other. So we have to understand the histories of other people. And that's really important. When I was brought up, the only history I ever learned was English history. It wasn't even British, it was English history. We didn't like the Scots much because they really kept rebelling against us. Do you understand what I'm saying? It was quite narrow. Now, if I'm talking to someone in Russia and I don't understand 
how often Russia has been invaded in the last 150 years and by whom it's been invaded, you haven't any comprehension of what it's like to be Russian. If I'm a boy and I'm reading a book about a girl, it helps me to understand that side of things. It's as simple as that. It helps the young understand the old. That's why I'm so passionate about, about reading, not just my books. The wonderful thing about books today for young people is there's everything. You have this huge, huge choice. So that's, I suppose, you could say my philosophy without wittering on and on and on. Just learn to be kind, because kindness will, will get us there in the end. I've got to believe that. I don't think there's a teacher in the world who isn't ultimately an optimist, otherwise you wouldn't be a teacher. <laughs> I think it's a fantastic place to nearly end, but not quite end. <coughs> and just because, I, because this is going to be a very, very special, and I'm afraid we've run out of time for questions. There will be those <coughs> books with book plates on, signed book plates afterwards, because Michael's not actually going to sign. But there is a very, very special thing he's going to do just to end this session. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. You nearly forgot. This is the bit where the doors have been shut <laughs> and you can't leave. Um, we were, the whole idea, I think, of coming here today was to talk about how you mustn't talk down to children, how you must try to tell them how it is that you see the world. One of the books of mine that's been very lucky um, to, to spread more than any other is Warhorse, simply because there was a, a wonderful play on at the National Theatre, which told the story in the most extraordinary way so that more people got to know it. And then there was a film, which I'll say little about, but the play <laughs> was extraordinary and is extraordinary. It's still going on 10, 12 years afterwards. And there's a song in it, um, which I thought I'd sing. This is why I said the doors are shut. <laughs> there's no way you can escape this. Um, what you have to do is to... Um, Imagine me, I mean, I'm not an opera singer, as you'll discover in a minute. Um, I did sing in a choir when I was younger, but then I had a treble voice. Um, you have to imagine me um, in my bath? No, no, perhaps. <laughs> anyway, the song of the show, which I'd like to, to try to sing to you, is um, the one that is best known in, in the show, I think. It's called Only Remembered. Normally people sing it with about 30 people in a choir, and they have accompaniment, I have nothing. But I'd like to sing it to you because I love it. Called Only Remembered. I'll have a little drink before I go. Fading away like the stars in the morning Losing their light in the glorious sun Thus would we pass from this earth and its toiling, only remembered for what we have done. Only remembered, only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. Thus would we pass from this earth and its toiling, only remembered for what we have done. Only the truth that in life we have spoken, only the seed that in life we have sown, these shall pass onwards when we are forgotten, only remembered for what we have done. Only remembered, only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. Thus would we pass from this earth and its toiling, only remembered for what we have done. All sing the anthem, and who will 
tell the story. Will the line hold? Will it scatter and run? Shall we at last be united in glory? Only remembered for what we have done. Only remembered, only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. Thus would we pass from this earth and its toiling, only remembered for what we have done. Horses and men, plowshares and traces, the line on the land and the paths of the sun. Season by season, we mark nature's graces, only remembered for what we have done. Only remembered, only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. Thus would we pass from this earth and its toiling, only remembered for what we have done. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.